Luke 23, verses 26 through 34. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, or Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But Jesus turning to them, but turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs who never bore and the breast that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals on his right side. One on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. This is God's word. Those who have ears to hear are blessed to hear what the Spirit of God says to the church. You may be seated this morning. Let me pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the gift in bringing us to this place this morning to corporately worship together as the local church who is gathered in your name. We pray that this morning as we worship you in our listening, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts, Lord, that are soft to receive, and that you would give us minds that are awake and alert to your word. I do decrease so that you may increase. I do become less so that you and you alone can become more. And pray, God, that your people would not hear, not me, but hear your voice, Lord, speaking through a vessel that you have chosen to declare faithfully, I pray, the full counsel of your word. Be glorified this morning because to you only belongs the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is my intention for the next seven weeks to do what I have not done on a Sunday in over three years, and that is to preach a topical series on this Lord's Day. I believe that uh, we will find that this series is right in line with what we have been studying in the Gospel of John, and we will be looking at the seven sayings of our Lord from the cross. The cross is the ultimate revelation of the heart of God. It is my hope that as we consider together the unveiled heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will have a a greater, more profound understanding of the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. The Bible has one message that is consistent throughout the pages of Scripture. That message could be summed up in three words. Behold your God. There's one consistent message. That message could be summed up as behold 
your God. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon, uh, Salvation and Sovereignty, would say that the message throughout the Bible, throughout the pages of sacred scripture, is God saying, I am God, and there is no other. And I do believe that these two messages are one and the same. That the whole Bible is a revelation of who God is, and a declaration that He is God, and there is no other. God has revealed to us all that He desires for us to know about Him in the sacred pages of Scripture. Whenever you read, and whatever you are reading, you can be sure of this, that the primary point that is being made in whatever you're reading, wherever you are reading, the primary point is this, behold your God, there is no one like Him. Do you see that as you are reading the pages of Scripture? Do you see that as you are going through your Bible reading plans? Do you see that magnificent point leaping off the pages of Scripture? Do you believe that this morning? That throughout the Bible, God is making this spectacular point. Behold, your God, there is no one like Him. We see this point made clear in creation. As God displays His power and His artistry in the cosmos, in the creation of the cosmos, by the power of His Word, He called into existence all that we see by the power of His Word. And He uses the universe as a a canvas, His own personal canvas, to display the wonders of His creativity so that we may stand back in awe and say, Behold, our God, there is none like Him. In parting of the Red Sea, for the children of Israel, He displayed His saving power in rescuing them from the oppressive hand of the Egyptians and those who destroyed them. Why? What was the, 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 the reason? What was the purpose for all of that drama found in the book of Exodus? It was so that the people could stand back and look behind them and say all together, as they've been freed from their slave masters, say in amazement, Behold, our God, there is none like Him. At Mount Sinai, God shows His majesty and His holiness in giving the law that was a reflection of His perfection. And what was the response of the people? The response of the people was the response of any person who comes face to face with God. Who comes face to face with the the majesty and the holiness of God. Here is their response. Behold our God. There is none like Him. And yet, in all of these, though powerful and wonderful and majestic and holy as all of these things that I've just said may be, they do not reveal to us the complete heart of God the way the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ reveals to us the complete heart of God. The cross is the ultimate penetrating self-revelation of God. For it is there at the cross, at a place outside the city, the place of the skull that the Lord was crucified between two thieves. 
And in those dramatic events, God was declaring to the world, as our Lord hung between two criminals, counted as a criminal himself, the message that God was declaring to the entire world was this, Behold your God. There is none like him. John said in John 1.14, We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We should ask John, John, where did you see his glory? And he may say, well, there are a number of answers. We saw his glory at the birth when he came forth from the womb of a virgin, born of the Spirit. We saw his glory when he was baptized and when God said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We saw his glory when he healed the sick, when he raised the dead and fed the multitudes. We saw his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration when he metamorphosed, if you will, changed before their very eyes. But it was at the cross where those who had eyes to see really began to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was not that John saw the glory of Christ on the cross immediately. It was not as though he, he looked at our Lord, who was unrecognizably beaten, and said, Ah, behold the glory of God. He did not see our Lord on that cross and immediately recognize substitutionary atonement was being made. He did not look on that cross and say, Ah, the Lamb who was slain for our sins. But it was that John came to see. John came to understand that the cross was where God displayed to the entire world. Behold your God. There is no one like Him. Our Lord Jesus Christ was arrested, betrayed by Judas, deserted by His disciples, tried and found guilty before a band of religious leaders who conspired to put him to death, turned over to Pilate, and after being brutalized, beaten, bloody, and, and unrecognizably beaten, he's now led away to be crucified with sinful men, counted as one of them. We must know that Jesus is not being led away because Judas betrayed him. Jesus is not being led away because Judas betrayed him. Our Lord is not being led away because the Jews conspired to kill him. And our Lord is not being led away to be crucified because Pilate uncourageously condemned him. Rather, our Lord Jesus Christ is being led away to be crucified because the Father, out of love for us, personally delivered him up to be a sacrifice for the sakes of those whom he foreloved. It was God who delivered him up. It was God who delivered him up for you, for me. So we find our Lord Jesus Christ hanging, bloody, bruised, on a Roman cross between two thieves. He was forsaken by his disciples and he will soon be experiencing the forsakenness of his father. And in his humanity, he will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he hangs there, 
from that tree that the soldiers are, are underneath him callously playing dice to see who will get his clothes. Matthew 27 tells us that the, that the two robbers who hung from the cross, one from the left and one from the right, and those who passed by derided him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They wagged their heads saying to him, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. And even at the cross, our Lord is tempted. The religious leaders, they scoffed at him. Matthew 27, 42, he saved others. The others, they said, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let him now deliver. Let God now deliver him if he desires him. Again, another temptation from Jesus. Should I display to the world that I am from God and know he resists? And it was while he was on that cross, abandoned, bloody, beyond recognition, mocked, ridiculed, abused, and misused, that our Lord says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We read in earlier, in the earlier passages, how Simon of Cyrene was called to help our Lord carry the cross. There are multitudes, get that in your mind, multitudes that are weeping and following Jesus as he is headed to the cross. And his response to those who are weeping is, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. But what, what, what is uppermost? What is at the center of the mind and heart of the Savior? When he is crucified between these two thieves. It is not the judgment that will undoubtedly go, that it will undoubtedly fall on unbelieving Israel. Judgment is not on his mind. But rather, forgiveness is on his mind. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Try to take this all in. Try to take the reality. Not a story, the reality. This really happened. Try to take the reality that is taking place in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ at that particular moment. Get into your mind the crowds and how they are all yelling a variety of things. Save yourself. Die, you blasphemer. Try to get into your mind as he hangs from that cross the soldiers literally underneath you playing dice for your clothes as you hang there. Try to understand it and get into your mind the religious leaders scoffing at him, mocking at him, indifferent. Try to take all that in. And if you can imagine, if you can try for a moment to ex and understand the, the excruciating pain that our Lord is enduring and has endured up until this point. As he's handed over into the hands of the religious mob of that day. And they relentlessly abused him. Remember, the, 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 the punches and the slaps and the pulling of hair and the spit. Try to imagine, if you are able, the Roman soldiers who, who flogged him mercilessly, ripping flesh from his body until they finally had perceived that he had enough. And then try to imagine a crown of thorns that is being smashed onto his skull. 
causing blood to rush down his face. He's tired. He's physically weak. He's so weak that he cannot even carry the cross. And it has not yet been described. But then he reaches that hill. And can you imagine him climbing that hill? Those of you who know climbing hills at the bluffs, and you're doing it rather healthy, you're doing it with flesh that has not been ripped off of your body or, or, or with a full night's sleep. Imagine trying to climb a hill and knowing that the top of that hill is your death. And as he climbs step after step, those Roman soldiers take this beaten, bruised and wounded man and lay him on that cross. And when they lay him on that cross, they take five to seven inch nails, one inch, seven inch, five to seven inches in length, one inch in diameter, and they begin to nail them into both of his hands. And they take his feet and they begin to nail those nails into his feet. And then not only that, then they raise him up. And it may have been it had to be excruciating. But can you imagine the, 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 the greater amount of excruciating pain that takes place when they raise him up and now he is then, then hanging from those nails. And he must raise himself up by those nailed, ridden hands and feet so that he can breathe. If not, he would suffocate and die. Can you imagine the, imagine the unimaginable pain that takes place each time pulling yourself up by nails that are holding you up so that you can breathe? Okay, now you've got a picture. And in the midst of all that, the words that leap from his mouth, the words that come from his lips that you and I would never be able to comprehend if we were in that place are this... Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. They don't know. What are these words? What a wonder it is that these words, these words come from the lips of our God. You and I both know the words that would come from our lips if we were hanging from the cross and had the power that he had. I will see you again. And it won't be pretty. Laugh now. Your day is coming. I will especially punish, enjoy punishing you. That's a good joke. Wait. Two more hours and you'll see. But these are not the lips that come from our Lord. Or the words that come from our Lord's lips. They're not words of vengeance, but they are words. Listen, they are words of mercy. They are not words of revenge. They are words of mercy. And let us not be deceived at the point of these words. We may read these words and conclude that the the primary, the first, the most important truth that shines out from these words is that man has a great need to be forgiven by God. And although that, that is a truth, and it is undeniable, and it is necessary for all men to be forgiven of God, yes, men and women must seek forgiveness from God for the sin that they committed in Adam as their federal head, and, as the, and for the sin that they have personally committed. We need the forgiveness of God. But don't forget, I brought up to you a problem that you and I have. You remember what it was? What it was? The problem that you and I have is that when we come to the scriptures, we are always looking for ourselves first and not for God. That's our problem. 
We all have that. It is ours by nature. My sister, she took pictures of our family outing yesterday and, and she sent us all pictures. And as each picture began, began to come into my phone, what's the first thing I began to look for? Myself. Naturally. And so do you. And that's why you're laughing. As it is when we come to the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, the great truth that is shining forth in these words is not first our need for forgiveness from the Father. But rather the first truth that is shining forth in this passage is this. God is a richly forgiving God who is rich in mercy. That's the first truth that is screaming out, shining out in this passage, that God is richly forgiving in mercy. Do you see the switch? It may seem like a small switch, but it is, it is bigger than you can imagine. The focus is not behold your need. That's the second. The focus, the shining truth in this passage is this. Behold your God. There is none like Him. It is not first behold your need. It is first behold your God. Because even in the midst of His suffering and being sinned against, He gives mercy. There is none so merciful. There is none so loving. There is none so caring. There is none so merciful than our God Yahweh. Amen. There is no forgiveness that can be found in anyone but Christ alone. In Exodus 34, Moses asked the Lord to show him his face. Show me your glory, as it were. And Moses hid in the cleft of the rock as the Lord passed only revealing the backside, his backside to Moses. And what is the response of Moses when the Lord passes by? It is this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34, 6. The writer, the writers of the Psalms quoting the Torah, quoting that verse, say the exact same words of Moses. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. What's the point of that? What's the point of Moses' response when he sees the Lord? It is this. That God says, you want to know me, Moses? You want to know and understand who I am? You want to see me for all that I am? And the first thing that you must know, the first thing that you must see is this. I am rich in mercy. I am rich in mercy. I am gracious. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in steadfast love. And I am faithful. That's the first response when Moses sees God, the Lord, the Lord, merciful. Behold your God. There is no one like Him. These that our Lord is pleading for. These that our Lord is praying for have just crucified Him. You get that? The ones He's praying for are the ones who have just crucified Him. But here He is, the crucified God-man, praying to His Father, forgive them. And if the Son of God prayed, Father, forgive them, then guess what? They would be forgiven. They for whom he is praying, all that, that he is praying for, all of them that, are, that he is praying for, they would be forgiven. Is there any prayer that our Lord prays that God does not answer? No. 
I say to you who are sitting here today, who are right now thinking in your hearts and in your minds, that you wish that you could be forgiven of God. That you wish that you could be freed from the guilt and shame that has haunted you when you wake and haunting even you when you sleep. Let me say to you from the pages of Scripture and from the authority of God, behold your God. There is no one like Him. He is rich in mercy. He is abounding in love. He, He is extravagant in mercy. Come to Him. Come to Him. See how merciful a God we serve. See how wonderfully extravagant that mercy is. Don't hide from Him. Acknowledge that you've sinned. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. There is no sin that is beyond the faithful mercy of God. No sin. There is no sin that is beyond the faithful mercy of God. So come to Him. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ. And you will find that He is a perfect loving Savior. Take up your cross. Live for Him and for His glory. Do you notice that Jesus gives a reason for their forgiveness? Forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. For they know not what they do. It is a clause of consequence. There is a reason why they need forgiveness. Because they don't know. Because they don't know. And what is our Lord saying? He is telling us that these men that are crucifying Him have no true idea who He is. And therefore they have no idea the weight of the evil that they are involved in. They have no idea the weight of the evil that they were involved in. Therefore, Father, forgive them. They are those who were like Paul, who acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank him who gave me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. Persecutor and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy. Why, Paul? Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? Paul, why did you receive mercy? Because I acted ignorantly. I acted like these at the cross in ignorance and in unbelief. And brothers and sisters, there was a huge difference, biblically speaking, between sinning ignorantly and in unbelief versus sinning in the full face of the light of the revelation of God. As the Pharisees and the religious leaders had done and, and have done throughout the centuries. There was a huge difference from you sitting in this church Sunday after Sunday, hearing truth. And then going and committing premeditated sin versus the person who has not heard this truth and is living in sin. The Bible tells us that we heap on our heads more judgment when you are exposed to more truth and do not live in accordance. The religious leaders and the Pharisees had clearly seen and they had clearly refused to believe. They had all knowledge, but they continued to harden their hearts toward Christ. 
their sin was greater. Yes, all sin is sin, but not all sin is equally culpable. Not all sin is equally culpable. All sin is sin, yes. But not all sin will receive, will, will receive the same punishment. These men, those that Jesus was praying for, clearly had not sinned against the full face of the light of God. So there was still hope for them. And here our Lord prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they were doing. And it appears that our Lord once again is displaying the ministry that he ever lives to accomplish. Intercession for his own. And notice, our Lord is concerned not with himself. He's in pain. But he is not occupied with his own pain, but rather he is occupied with the sin of these men. He is in excruciating pain. The nerve ends must have been screaming out, enough! And yet his pain was not his concern. Their sin was his concern. And think about it. When do you think that prayer of our Lord was answered? Because every prayer that our Lord prays will be answered by God. Amen? So when was that prayer answered? It is possible, in one sense, that the prayer was answered when a nameless Roman centurion, who had witnessed all that had taken place, stood by, and when the Lord finally gave up his spirit, here is that Roman centurion's testimony. Luke twenty three forty seven. Now when the centurion saw all that had taken place, he praised God. I heard someone say he glorified, he glorified God. Saying what? Certainly this man was innocent. Or maybe seven weeks later, at the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people, listen, whom Peter described in Acts 3.15, listen, as the ones who killed the author of life, were cut to the heart. And what did they do when they were cut to the heart? They repented of sin, turned to Christ, and they were baptized. Or maybe the prayer of Christ was answered in Acts 6-7. When the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Listen, and a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, all of the sheep of Christ shall come into his fold. When he calls, they will hear his voice and they will come. And that has continued on down throughout the centuries because you and I are also the fruit of the intercession of the selfless Son of God. (laughs) Dear ones, behold your God. There is no one like him. But, secondly, that hole was... Important one, behold your God. Secondly, there's another point that we have noted as not being the primary point, but it is never, nevertheless a very important point. The primary point is, behold your God. The secondary point is this, behold your great need. Behold your God. Secondly, behold your great need. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, we need the forgiveness of God. And here is the great thing that we take from this point, that once again points us back to God. God delights to forgive. We have a great need. And in response to that great need, 
Let's once again exalt God because God delights in forgiveness. Ezekiel 18.23, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn from their wicked ways and live. Why did God send his son into the world? What would you say if you were to answer that question? The Bible tells us in John 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the first great movement of God in Christ Jesus, that he has come to give to us our great need. Brothers and sisters, what is our great need? Our great need is God, whom we have been separated from because of our sin. So what has God done in order to accomplish what we most need? He has sent his Son. To provide for us a means of what? Of access to God. How? Through the cross, which provides for us forgiveness. So that we may be reconciled to God and have peace with God. Brothers and sisters, you may think I need to stop all of the vices that are in my life. And yes, you do. But you must understand that when stopping those vices, you may stop them and still be apart from God. You may live a life that is free from what the world would call vices, and what even the church would say, those are sins. But you doing all those things on your own strength, and not trusting that in the end, your strength is still not enough, because Christ, could do, Christ has done for you what you could never do for yourself, and that is reconcile you to God, then and only then, will you understand what it really means to be free from sin. It is not just on your own stopping the drinking and the lust and the partying and the lying and the gossiping. It is not just that on your own because some of you can do that on your own. You can make a decision. I'm going to stop lying. For those of you who have that issue, you can make a decision. I'm going to stop lusting. Good luck with that. You can make a decision in your flesh. And still be eternally separated from God because you have not trusted in the perfect work of Christ. God has provided for us our great need himself. And he has accomplished that through his son, Jesus Christ. So what must you do? Go to Christ. Turn to Christ. Trust in Christ. Because he alone can save you. Now... There are two things that we must consider concerning your great need. It is this. In light of the forgiveness that has been given or provided for us, we must be honest and say to ourselves, yes, I have fully and by the grace of God freely placed my faith in Christ and received forgiveness from God in Christ alone. Have you done that? What a glorious wonder it is to to be able to answer in the affirmative. But we must also ask ourselves another question. It is this. How can we say we have fully received God's forgiveness and not fully and freely forgiven those who have sinned against us? Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Forgiving one another 
as God in Christ forgave you. Listen, in Matthew 6, Jesus Christ withholds forgiveness from those who refuse to forgive. Do you hear that? He withholds forgiveness from those who withhold forgiveness. His prayer in Matthew 6.14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It is amazing. It is amazingly sad how we can see the wonder, how we can see wonderfully and accept all the precious promises of God in Christ Jesus, namely forgiveness for the countless vile sins that we've done, and, and if we're honest, continue to do, and yet withhold forgiveness from those who have committed small crimes against us. And even if they are big crimes, if God holds out forgiveness to them, who are we to lock up our forgiveness and throw away the key. We often behave like the servant of Matthew 18, whose great debt was forgiven. Forgiven millions, millions canceled, only to go out and from that act of mercy search for one who owed little. Scripture descri- describes it as one who was less than a dollar. And refuse to show mercy to that individual. We have been forgiven much. So we must forgive much. The Bible describes that the master called that servant in and said to him, You wicked servant. I canceled all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you have not had mercy on your fellow servant. As I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him up to the jailers until he should pay all of his debts. So also my heavenly father, Jesus says, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Ah, not so easy, pastor. Ah, you don't know what they've done to me. Ah, pastor, forgive but don't forget, right? I beg you, don't reason like the world reasons. Don't take the world's philosophies and mix them with your Christianity. Because nowhere in all of Scripture do you find, forgive them, but don't forget them. Mark it in your mind. Peter asked the Lord, how many times shall I forgive? Seven times? And Peter was, was being sarcastic. Seven times? And he was also quoting the law. The man-made law of that day, which was forgive up to seven times. And what was the response of Jesus? No, not seven times, Peter. Seven times 70. You want to get smart with me? I'll get smart back with you. Seven times 70. An infinite number. That is not for us to multiply seven times 70 and say, okay, the actual number is 490. That's what he's saying. No, that's not what he's saying. He's also being sarcastic and saying an infinite number. Don't stop forgiving. Don't stop forgiving. Never stop withholding forgiveness. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Dear ones, the true marks of a Christian is that we fully and freely forgive those who have sinned against us. Even to the point that we remember their sin no more. 
Some of you are staying awake at night, laying in your bed still thinking about how you were sinned. Stop. Recognize that you have been forgiven much. And what does God say about your sin? I'm going to remember your sin, so don't do it again. He says, I have cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, and never shall the two meet. If he has forgiven and forgotten your sins, cast them so far that he no longer even pays any mind to them, then who are we to keep unforgiveness and harbor resentment in the recesses of our minds? Remember, much you have been forgiven, so you must forgive much. The, secondly, the second point in that is, yes, you must forgive. And the second point in that sub-point is this. With you there is forgiveness, and therefore you are feared. God's gracious forgiveness has a purpose. It is that we might reverence Him. That we might adore Him. And we should all know this well. Do you reverence God? Because of the great mercy with which He has shown you. That He was under no obligation to show you. Luke 7, a sinful woman comes to where Jesus is having dinner and she falls at his feet, breaking an alabaster box of perfumes at his feet and and pouring them on his feet and then wiping them with her hair. It is altogether an act of loving devotion, an act of reverence. But why, you must ask, why is she doing this? Jesus explains to those who are having dinner with him, it is because she has been forgiven much. Therefore, she loves much. Why do you love God? Why do you love Him so little? Those who have been forgiven much, they love much. And they also forgive much. We need, as my father used to to sing, and as I was preparing and studying, no matter how many times, even as I was studying, I could hear it in his head, or in my head, him singing, we need to go back to the cross. We need to go back to the cross. And he would ad-lib, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. And the burden of my sin was wiped away. It was there by faith. I received my sight. We need to go back and be saturated with the wonder of the love that was displayed and offered for us at the cross. We need to go back and be saturated with overwhelming reverence for God. 